Episode 278, Will COVID-19 Result in a New Normal for Value-Based Pharmaceutical Pricing? Today, I speak with Maura Kaltzen from the Center for American Progress. American healthcare entrepreneurs and executives you want to know. Talking. Relentlessly seeking value. Today, I'm speaking with Maura Kalsen from the Center for American Progress, or CAP. And we're talking about value-based drug pricing and the impact that COVID-19 may have on its definition, operationalism, and broad adoption. I remember a situation kind of years ago, actually, where a pharma company decided to lower its price on an infused product. Normal supply and demand would dictate that if you lower your price, you will get more overall business, which will result potentially in more overall revenue, the old supply and demand curve at work. In this case, though, that pharmaceutical brand's business plummeted. The pharma had to raise their price again to capture the market share that they wound up losing by lowering their price. Why? Because doctors get paid a percentage of the drug cost to administer the product. So the lower the drug price, the less a physician gets paid. Provider organizations have a big incentive to prescribe the highest priced product. So, you know, the opposite of whatever you learned in Economics 101. On the other hand, and possibly more often, we have pharma pricing products based on what they think the market will bear. And historically, that has meant a really high price point because the market will bear, it turns out, quite a lot. There's this perception that our national and employer pocketbooks are unlimited when it comes to healthcare spending. And I can see how the healthcare industry would get that idea because it, it pretty much has always been a true statement. Despite a lot of grousing and complaining, the bill gets paid. But pain causes change. It is very possible that this pandemic will not only change how medical care is delivered, which we've been talking a lot about in the past few episodes, but also it will have an impact on how pharmaceutical drugs are priced and patented. If you think about it, and I started to think about it after this conversation with Mara, the optimal price for a pharmaceutical product would be an amount that enables everyone in a population who needs the drug to be able to get it. What a tragedy it is when there is a drug, when science has produced a drug that can help someone who is suffering, but they can't get it. Maybe this is because a healthcare middleman is trying to game the system for as much profit as possible. Or maybe it's because the manufacturers set their price high to earn as much money as they can from those who can pay, but at a sacrifice of those who cannot. Maura and I talk about the emerging, in air quotes, Netflix model or the Australian model of paying for drugs today also, which is pretty interesting. Prior to her role at the Center for American Progress, my guest today, Maura Kalsen, worked at HHS in the general counsel's office and was lead attorney and or worked on a number of Medicaid initiatives, including the Medicaid rebate program. My name is Stacey Richter. This podcast is sponsored by Aventria Health Group. Maura Kalsen, welcome to Relentless Health Value. Thank you for having me. 
So let's talk about the value of pharmaceutical products today, which is becoming all the more important just given the COVID pandemic that we are currently sitting right in the middle of and the strain that it is putting on the ultimate purchasers of healthcare, i.e. both the government as well as employers from both a cost perspective as well as a diminishing revenue perspective in, in really both cases. What's going on right now really underscores the importance of making sure that we are paying appropriately. And when I say we, I mean the system as a whole, as well as individual consumers for care. This crisis shines a light on existing issues within the system and the importance of making sure that we have value-based pricing for the system as a whole, as well as making sure that these products are affordable for patients, which very much means that they need to be without cost sharing for patients. Those kind of two pieces, I think we need to look at it at the system level as well as at the individual level. It sounds like in the equation, value-based equation, there is an inference that how much money exists is sort of part of the equation, which is a little bit different than, you know, let's just say in every other industry, how prices are defined. Well, actually, let me roll that back a little bit because, you know, if we're talking about how much the market will bear, then like you have to look at how much money is there in the kitty as part of the factors that make up what is a fair price for this product. Yeah, I think that's right because this is, I mean, it's just so different than other consumer product. If one person is willing to pay $500 for a handbag and that person, you know, has to do the budget themselves because in their world, they are constrained. So if they buy that bag, they might not, you know, go on a vacation. In the drug pricing world, it really, because you have not just the patient purchasing and paying for the drug that's necessary to them, but it really affects overall state and federal budgets. It affects the premiums that other people are able to afford elsewhere. So there's just, it's, it's a market, but it's, it's really not a typical market at all. I think that when there are people in the industry who are siloed into certain pieces of it, I think that you forget that your pricing decisions have ripple effects throughout. Let's go back, actually, a drug that got tons of attention were the hep C treatments. I mean, that drug, to me, the evidence that that drug was not priced appropriately in the beginning is that Medicaid programs, for example, had really strict limits on who could access that drug. And to me, to make sure that that drug was really appropriately priced, under our framework of value-based purchasing, anybody who meets the clinical criteria for receiving that drug should have received that drug. Also, I mean, there are broad public health reasons why you would want everybody to have that because it's an infectious disease. That's sort of the point I'm trying to get to. We're dealing with what might seem like an infinite amount of resources, but it's really not. So before we get into subscription model pricing, which is going on (laughs) right now, you know, relative to exactly those questions, and sometimes it's called the Australian model. Netflix model. The Netflix model, yeah, where manufacturers are offering purchasers, like, okay, I understand that you would realize the benefits of this product over uh, the course of five years. So we're going to charge you one-fifth of the price for five years, you know, something like that. Or doing things at the population level, like we're going to, we think that there's going to be 100 patients that are on this, so we're going to charge you like a monthly fee. Mm -hmm. And however many patients need this product, then we'll, we'll be able to get it for a fixed amount. So it's not like there's unpredictability in the spend. 
does that solve the problem? Or are you suggesting that the price of the product actually, in that case, you're basically just getting a payment plan effectively. The price of the product is, could still be very high. It's just you can pay for it over a period of time instead of all up front. I think that there might be ways in which those models or payment plans, whatever we want to call them, get you to a value-based price. There may be cases in which they have resulted in it, but I, I think that that's sort of a back-ended way to get into it. it. It provides critical certainty to budgets that I think is really important. However, you know, perhaps they're still paying too much. I just, I think that that by going through that without taking a closer look at, at the unit price, I think is a real world way to get at this, but might not be, the price settled on probably doesn't reflect the same analysis. And I realize that this is sort of an academic conversation, but I think that the Netflix or Australian model is a really helpful tool for especially states to manage their budgets. And I think that it's especially helpful for states because of Medicaid's limits on cost sharing. So you can really have states have some budget certainty and make sure that those that more people are actually having access to those products at a price that they can afford. So it's an incremental way to make prices more palatable, but it doesn't necessarily get to the root issue. Yeah, exactly. I think it's more of a contract structure. And I think that's one piece that's different, like value-based pricing think really needs to have to instead of being determined by the manufacturer's assessment our hypothesis is that value-based pricing really only applies to arrangements that are priced according to their population impact and that you need a transparent and really replicable process and that is separate from different contract arrangements that might be used to reach value-based price but aren't themselves really a value-based price at the item level. So you mentioned something earlier, which I found really interesting. The idea that some have said that value-based price is a way to limit access, which would seem to be the opposite of what you're saying. What are they thinking? This goes to the use of the metric quality adjusted life year quality as part of some value-based pricing models. I will say that, you know, I think that there are legitimate concerns that qualies when used alone or without any additional equity-based adjustment can be biased in some ways because it really, it places a greater value on perfect health, non-disabled life years. So that can be very much biased just as sort of embedded into the analysis against disabled individuals. However, I think that qualies can serve as a starting point for a deeper analysis that then we go through and figure out considerations of equity and affordability and really take it from that lens versus starting with the, we're going to have pharmaceutical manufacturers price a drug based on what they think that they can get for it and then argue that any other piece is really undermining access Again, it's everybody wants people to get the drugs that they need to lessen their pain, to cure disease, to mitigate effects of disease. I think the question really is just who is paying for it? When we're setting a price, where does the value of that price, where does the money go to and, and how should we be spending those limited resources? So relative to the, let's just say the... <laughs> conspiracy theory version of value-based pricing. Yeah. <laughs> value-based pricing. I mean, it sounds great. 
So kind of what I'm understanding you saying is that some people are using the term value-based pricing as an excuse to make the price really high, which then therefore limits access. So there's different ways, the, the, the terms being used in different ways, and some of them are a little bit more genuine than others. Yes. I mean, I, I think everybody will make the argument that their framework for value-based pricing is, is the most accurate. I, I think that where I think that we've had problems with this term becoming something that it's not in the pharmaceutical industry is twofold. I'll start with the first is that value for whom, right? I mean, who captures that entire value? So let's do a hypothetical patient who's a young child. A hospital can save that child's life, but they aren't going to say, you know what, the value of that child's life theoretically is, you know, X million dollars, you know, because this is a young child and we're going to put some arbitrary number on it. They are pricing their care at certain levels, but they're not saying, you know, for the treatment of this child, for this one surgery, we get a million dollars from you healthcare payers. The same child might have a condition that needs, that can be cured by pharmaceutical therapy. Right now, I think that a lot of industry folks would argue that because that is a cure, that they are able to actually extract the entire value of the assigned amount and pocket it for themselves. So that's one piece. I think the other piece, it goes a little bit to the Netflix model, is we're confusing what is actually a value-based price with some of the tools that are used to try to get closer to that or try to come up with alternate ways to extract a big price over a longer period of time. Effectively, what you're saying is that, you know, so say I'm a PCP. And I, you know, save a child's life because the kid was choking and I did the Heimlich. I don't know. Mm -hmm. I just made that up. Then I'm like, okay, well, that was worth a million dollars because the kid is little. And if I estimate how much that kid's life is worth, it's a couple million dollars. So I'm going to send a bill out for a million dollars because I gave someone the Heimlich. Exactly. Yeah. You know, the pharmaceutical industry is the only industry that is looking at things like that (laughs) and saying, well, our drug is worth its future impact. Absolutely. And I think that that has implications, right, for other parts of the healthcare system. Because if they're extracting those prices in one place, what does that mean for, you know, an employer's budget for healthcare in other places? And that actually is a really relevant point. You know, I was just talking to a union leader the other day who was saying that there's one dependent in his patient population who has a drug that costs like a million dollars which is twice as much as what they're the cost of like 5,000 other people. And he's like, do I raise our premiums? Like, how do I deal with this? Like, it was expensive to begin with. We can't, that's a ethical dilemma. Absolutely. And and I'm not saying that extraordinarily amazing treatments should be priced at, you know, $10. We just need to figure out a way and uh, an approach to pay for those that do adequately compensate for the development of the drug. The development of the drug, not just by the manufacturer, but also taking into account what we've already paid prior to the drug coming to market. And, you know, you, you obviously can't strip out, well, I guess I shouldn't say obviously, I think some people would say this. I personally do not believe you, you can strip out all profit from it. And you need to keep incentives in place for future drug development. But that does not mean extracting excess payments for this plan because they happen to have one child that needs this product. I mean, 
This is why value-based pricing is a tool to be able to lower healthcare prices across the board. I mean, the union leader, plan administrator that you just mentioned, I mean, so what does that mean? It means that if you keep paying that price for the drug, do you raise premiums? Do you redesign other pieces of your cost sharing? So for example, maybe like you start putting other drugs on specialty tiers or you have higher, you move your inpatient payments from co-pays to co-insurance. So why should these excess prices charged by pharmaceutical manufacturers end up having to shift costs to others and to consumers in different ways? And if I'm thinking about this from a pharmaceutical manufacturer standpoint, you know, and and you just addressed this, one of the pushbacks to lower prices is like, hey, we got to get compensated for R&D, number one. Number two, there's the whole, well, the PBMs are taking, like we, our prices have been flat for years. It's just that the PBMs keep extracting greater and greater portions and their share prices reflect it. And then the third bit of it that I've heard is that, well, okay, well, after seven years, the product goes generic and then we don't make any money, but it's still delivering value. So we need to, it's like a front loaded, you know, it's like a mortgage payment where the system pays more because on the back end, it will pay less. What do you think of all of that? I have so many thoughts on all of them. <laughs> I am probably going to need you to prompt me on the on the first two. I will start with the second one. I, I think that the idea that generic competition is a panacea for high prices is so disingenuous for particular manufacturers. I mean, the amount of patent manipulation, extensions, patent thickets, and the way that many manufacturers have taken the patent system and really extended the life. I mean, how many years has, for example, like Humira been having exclusivity? It's not seven years. And for a lot of our highest price drugs, you know, the, the, the really, you know, we're not talking about molecular drugs. We're talking about very complicated biologics. And the entry costs of entering that and competing against the existing manufacturers is just so high that you're not really going to have that same price reduction. So I just think that that is a way to sort of detract attention and doesn't really address the issue at all for payers. And I say payers like very, very broadly, you know, insurers, employers, consumers, governments. R&D. The R&D, I think that there is a trying to leverage fear. And I think that people are beginning to realize that if you lower prices by, you know, X amount, you're not suddenly going to have zero types of of products. I think there's two pieces there, right? There is the new drugs. So is every single new drug an improvement? Just because it's new doesn't mean that it's particularly innovative. R&D for what is important? So do you want R&D for, you know, your 10th drug in a particular class that doesn't really help you all that much that maybe might provide, you know, one more week of not particularly high quality life versus, you know, lowering drug prices in other categories that really can expand access to drugs that are really important. There's a lot of incentive to create drugs for oncology, which, you know, Medicare has to pay for based on the current CMS guidance and some of these orphan drugs with the fast approvals and whatnot. There's a lot of incentive to kind of go after very specific types of molecules and advance the science 
in certain areas specifically. Whereas you've got categories like vaccines, which typically haven't been, let's just say, highly compensated and which actually might have greater value. So in a way, some of these categories or therapeutic classes that actually do deliver greater population health in the way that you're defining it, maybe the rewards there should be richer. Yes, I think that's true. No, I'll just leave it at that. Yes, (laughs) that is what I'm saying. So there is a bit of a lack of alignment there relative to like what's really valuable for us as a population and as a country and with what we're inadvertently incenting. Exactly. However, I will caveat that I am not in any way saying that an eventual vaccine that is needed for, you know, the entire population can or should be priced at an amount that then creates these ripple effects. There's the ability for extraordinary amounts of money to be made here in a way that really does not advance the health of the country. So I I just, I'm not, by saying that we are not incentivizing vaccine development enough does not mean that I'm suddenly saying that we need to allow manufacturers to really extract excess rents from the country in exchange for producing vaccines. Understood. You know, like there is actually just based on this pandemic, the opportunity for the pendulum to swing way too far in the other direction where people haven't valued vaccines in the past. And now all of a sudden they really do. So, you know, vaccines could then become the poster child for the category that everybody wants to get involved in because there's prizes there, which are subject to the same sort of perverse incentives as everything else. Exactly, exactly. Do you want to talk about how we could think about fixing this? So if you were in charge of the universe, Mara, what would you do? Like, what are our next steps? I think our next steps are really, and this sounds extraordinarily basic, and this is not like a step in terms of changing contract prices or list prices, but I think we need to start thinking about drugs within the broader context of the healthcare system as a whole and also within our overall societal budget and ability to pay for things. I think that for too long, we've really treated the pharmaceutical industry as as very different than the rest of the healthcare system. And I think we need to think about not just the the price of drugs in terms of what it means for a specific payer, but far more broadly. So I think that that's the first step to really kind of changing the overall mindset when we're talking about this. I think it really behooves the industry to start thinking that way because there's going to get to a certain point where the trade-offs become far more clear to the extent that they're a little hidden right now or very hidden in various cases. I think it's made it easier for drug manufacturers to make broad claims of innovation and need for these high costs. But you can really think about a situation in which, you know, a drug comes out that's like a true game changer. So for example, like an Alzheimer's drug, if you price that drug at a certain level, those trade-offs are going to become absolutely explicit to the public. So I think that it really is important for manufacturers to start thinking about this How are you going to justify those prices? And how do you actually explain to people that they have to pay this amount or else they can't afford other things that are also really necessary? So I think that there is a real benefit for manufacturers to really start thinking a little bit more long-term. I mean, yes, we haven't gotten to that point now, but if you keep pressing and pressing and pressing, there's going to become a breaking point. And what do you think about the orphan drugs? You know, like obviously there is this push to get pharma interested in creating 
drugs for orphan conditions where the number of patients, you know, it's a handful of patients. So if the R&D is going to get paid for, the individual unit price of the drug has to be sky high, you know, like otherwise it doesn't add up on a balance sheet why anyone should do this. I mean, that might be an example of a, of a type of product that really should be developed and then potentially manufactured through other ways, right? So maybe the patent system and maybe the current system of incentivizing those drugs in this way simply doesn't work. So I think that, you know, there are areas in which potentially a drug is so important for a subset of people that we need to figure out another way collectively to pay for it. So whether or not that means really investing in more R&D, even more R&D at the federal level, figuring out a way, like do we then kind of license it in a very different way? I think that we need to preserve a way to make sure that those products are developed I think it's pretty clear right now that that designation has, while it's worked in some cases, I mean, I I think actually, again, not surprisingly, we keep bringing this conversation back to COVID, but the fact that Gilead sought, originally sought a orphan drug designation for their potential treatment, I think shows how that once apparently targeted appropriate incentive is probably not the best way to really make sure that that products in that category for like really, truly true conditions that are very, very rare is just not working right now. Yeah, I've heard that this is the loophole. This is the playbook. Get a molecule, find all these patients suffering from all these various rare diseases, give them the molecule, see what happens, set that what happens as your end point you know, like could walk mm-hmm. a few more steps or, you know, like, yep. yeah, and then count that as a patient reported outcome and sell your drug for millions of dollars. Yeah. That's not really investing in the type of true transformative change that we want to see for these patients. So you said it better than I could have ever done. <laughs> well, I, I am actually kind of repeating something that I've heard some employer organizations speculate. Uh And obviously it's coming from a very cynical place. But, you know, like this is the perception that's starting to develop relative to, you know, some of these products and and a few, you know, the bad actors that are taking advantage of this thing with a really good intent. Yeah, no, absolutely. It was designed with absolutely the best intentions. I mean, it does raise the question of, is there, are there other ways that we need to finance and bring to market drugs other than the existing system. Because obviously tweaks to incentives for those types of products have have really not worked out the way we wanted to. So do we need to think about things like, as I mentioned, you know, a far more investment in certain types of research at the federal level? Do we need to start thinking about things like public manufacturing? And again, those sound really radical, but I think that that's what I was really trying to get at when I mentioned manufacturers really starting to think more seriously about the consequences of some of these pricing decisions, because, you know, as radical as that sounds, it's not nearly as radical as it would have sounded even five years ago. So I think that that's really important for the manufacturer side of the equation to start thinking about. And then obviously the, there's a lot of perverse incentives which are complicating this whole thing. And, and when I say perverse incentives, I mean perverse incentives perpetuated by people that have got a lot of money and are lobbying all over the place, you know, so we have a political system that's a little bit loath to alter the status quo. And as long as these perverse incentives still remain, you know, the system is remains 
pretty vigorous, let's just say. <laughs> yes. So does it then, just given all these forces which are starting to compress the wallets of those who in the past have funded these, you know, really high prices for questionable value, does it become an incumbent on, you know, as a call to action of pharmaceutical manufacturers to kind of get a hand on what's happening to their drug prices downstream? You know, because there's a, it's been speculated that up to 30% or more of a drug price is not actually captured by the pharma company. It's captured by somebody else who is not necessarily providing additional value. There's plenty of, of opportunity for arbitrage kind of in the middle and, and some mm-hmm. are taking advantage of what's possible. So is that a call to action or, or what's your call to action here and to whom? And that's also the case. I mean, it's not enough to just point the finger at PBMs and other players in the middle. You, you really have to think about, well, first of all, you have to think about what, how did those organizations become what they've become? And you, you really need to think about, okay, if, if I am pricing my drug at this amount, why is there still outrage? That goes to one of the things I said right in the beginning, right? That a value-based price, I think, has responsibilities not just for the manufacturer to price it at that level, but then it also has real responsibility for payers. PBMs and payers then have the responsibility to make sure that that drug can be accessed by people. I mean, and that does not mean putting it on a specialty tier of a formulary that requires 20% cost sharing. I mean, that is simply not affordable. You need to have responsibility and accountability at both sides. And you also need to have a lot more transparency. I mean, it's just, it's a black box. And, you know, the pharmaceutical industry is correct in calling out the PBMs, but there is more than enough blame to go around. So is your call to action then to pharma to get a handle on their own supply chain? Yes, yes. I mean, that's absolutely one thing. And it's also a call to action by those at the other end of the supply chain. So when you actually are designing your benefits to make sure that these prices, these prices are, you know, they're based on value. They are based on on a metric that can be replicated that has been determined by an independent entity or entities, academics. And then you need to make sure that those drugs are actually able to get to the people who need them. Maura, where can people find out more about the Center for American Progress if they're interested in learning more about your mission and what you're up to? Sure. Our website is AmericanProgress.org. Maura Kallison, thank you so much for being on Relentless Health Value today. Thank you so much for having me. Links to everything discussed on the program today can be found at RelentlessHealthValue.com. If you visit the website, RelentlessHealthValue.com, you will also find a complete listing of all of the shows that we have published thus far with leading entrepreneurs and executives in the healthcare space today. Another cool feature is, you know, you can subscribe to the show so that every week the episode is automatically sent to you so you don't have to remember to go to the website to download it. Thanks so much for listening.